Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, good evening. Great to see you. Let me add my welcome to Chris's. My name's Andy. I'm one of the staff team here. And what a joy to be uh, together on Easter Sunday. It's great to have you with us here this evening. If you're, if you're new, you're particularly welcome. And um, uh, do keep Luke 24 open in front of you. We're going to be looking at these few verses together for the next few minutes. And um, some things are just too good to be true aren't they? If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, I remember when I first um, came, uh, when I first realised that some things are too good to be true. I must have been about seven years old, and I vividly remember finding in my parents' home a flyer. And on this flyer was a picture of the Caribbean. You can picture the scene. Beautiful, clear blue sky, Azure blue sea lapping gently against the white sand. Palm trees conveniently leaning on the beach with a hammock joining the two. There's a luxury cruise liner just off in the distance. And in bold print across this flyer, congratulations, you have won a big prize. And then in slightly smaller writing, just phone this number to collect your prize. And I ran into my father. I I still remember it now. I ran in. Dad, Dad, pack the bags. We've won a holiday to the Caribbean. I mean, I was seven. I didn't know where the Caribbean was. I just knew I wanted to go to the place on the picture. And my dad had to explain to me two of those very important facts of life. Um, Small print and premium phone numbers. Okay. (laughs) And I realised then, at seven years old, some things are too good to be true. So now, the message of Christianity, celebrated by Christians around the world in their millions this Easter Sunday, it is certainly good news. It is very good. Jesus Christ defeated death. On a Friday, he was killed, but three days later, he punched through death to eternal life and was seen risen physically and bodily. And more than that, the offer of Christianity, that he defeated death for you, that anyone who trusts in Jesus can enjoy a relationship with God, yes, that that begins now, that fills your life with joy and meaning and purpose now, but supremely that goes on through death and into eternity. A message of death defeated. Who wouldn't want that? Good news, and it sounds like good news, doesn't it? But is it too good to be true? I mean, who wouldn't want this life to add up to more than 60 or 70 years of work and a couple of decades of retirement if you're lucky? But is it too good to be true? Uh, Lots of people think that it is, don't they? I was talking to someone just a few months ago who said to me, Andy, I love the idea of an afterlife, But frankly, it's just implausible to a modern person like me. I'm a scientist, the guy said. I can't believe in an afterlife that I can't see or test or know anything about. Is it too good to be true? I think it's an issue that many Christians actually struggle with at some point in their lives. I remember remember the day that my grandmother died, and I'd sat with her by the hospital bed, and, um, and I'd, re- I'd read some of the Bible to her, and I'd talked to her about Jesus. 
But I, I remember thinking after she died, I, I had the moment of dawning realisation. Actually, I thought to myself, Andy, you, you fear your own death, don't you? You're afraid of death. And I found myself asking, is it really true? I mean, this message of life beyond the grave, it's so good, so comforting, but is it really true? Now look, Luke wrote his gospel, this biography of Jesus that you have in your hands, so that we could have certainty about the Christian gospel and certainty about the resurrection and the offer of life beyond the grave. Uh, He begins his gospel in Luke chapter 1 by explaining that he writes as a careful historian. He only records what he could verify from eyewitnesses. And the reason that he wrote was so that we could have certainty about the claims of the Christian faith that we've been taught, so that we could have a settled conviction about these things, so that we could know for sure And actually, you see that on Easter Sunday in the lives of Jesus' disciples, because in the reading we've just had in front of us, they begin full of doubt and uncertainty. Frankly, in verse 11, they think the idea of a resurrection is nonsense. But within just a few days, by the end of Luke 24, if you read on, they're full of certainty. In fact, these these uh, 11 men give the rest of their lives to boldly proclaiming to everyone that they can that Jesus is risen. And Luke wrote these things down so that we could share their certainty that Jesus really did rise and defeat death for us. Look, two lines of evidence for us this evening to convince us. And the first one is the evidence of the eyewitnesses the evidence of the eyewitnesses. Have a look down at verse one with me of the passage that was read. Luke 24, verse one. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they'd prepared and went to the tomb. So here is this group of women. They knew Jesus well. They had followed him for a number of years. They had eaten meals with him in their homes. They had sat at his feet and listened to his teaching. And Luke tells us they had seen him die. Uh, Just a few lines up from the reading that was read for us. Um, just, um, uh, Just look up with me to verse 49. Just a few lines up from Luke 24. Luke describes Jesus' death as he hung there on a cross. And in verse 49, he says, all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. See, this group of women, they saw Jesus nailed to a cross. They saw him suffocating in the hot sun, trying to drag his chest up to get breath. They saw a Roman spear thrust into his side and blood go everywhere, They saw Jesus breathe his last, and they saw him die. And Luke tells us more than that. They saw his body cut down from a cross and his corpse buried in a tomb. Uh, Look down to verse 55. Again, just a couple of lines up from our reading. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph of Arimathea and saw the tomb and how Jesus' body was laid in it. 
See, Luke wants us to be clear right at the start that, there is no, that there's been no mix-up here. It wasn't one of Jesus' mates who died on the cross by accident. It wasn't his long-lost twin brother or Simon of Cyrene or something like that. No, these women, they knew Jesus and they saw him die. There'd been no mistake. Jesus didn't just pass out on the cross and then sort of come round when he was taken down. There was no mix-up over which tomb. They'd seen him killed, and they'd seen a corpse of their friend and rabbi Jesus buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They'd seen it all, and they'd seen a two-ton stone rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb. And you know, grief makes you do funny things, doesn't it? In some ways, things that you might stand back from and say that's slightly illogical, really. Uh, A friend of mine died very suddenly in his 20s, and his family have had a plaque uh, placed outside Arsenal Football Club. And once a year, they go to that plaque, and they lay flowers every year. And at one level, you might say, well, that's, that's not a very logical thing to do, but it's how they say, Pete, we, we love you, we miss you. And here, these women who have seen Jesus die, they've seen him buried, and, and verse one, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they'd prepared, the spices they'd used to anoint Jesus' body, and they went to the tomb. Of course, at one level, we might say it's very unlikely anyone would roll the stone out of the way so some mourning women could go in and anoint the body. But, but here they are, they're going to the tomb, and this is how they say, Jesus, we love you, we miss you. You've died, and we can't imagine how life could ever be the same without you. Imagine the looks on their faces, grief, sorrow, fear maybe, because the people who had killed him were the ones in power never a great situation to be in as one of his followers. And when they arrive at the tomb, the women see something they do not expect and they don't see something that they do expect. Have a look down at verse two. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You see, when they get there, they find the stone rolled away, which they don't expect. And when they go there, they're looking for the friend that they've lost. And they find that the body is gone. And they're left, verse 4, verse 4, while they were wandering about this. Uh, it's It's a strong word. It means they were perplexed. They were staggered. They were at a loss to explain what could have possibly happened here. Look, let's be very clear about this this evening. These women did not have a spiritual experience of the risen Jesus. It's not wishful thinking. They didn't, um, Jesus didn't rise in their hearts. They went to a tomb expecting to find a dead body, and it was not there. And they don't know what to make of it, That is, until they have this encounter with the supernatural. Verse 4, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. Um, Look, if 
If you feel baffled by the idea of visions of angels, well, notice that the women are completely staggered by it too. They're on their faces in abject terror. What happened on this day was very unusual and terrifying and inexplicable to these women until the angels say, verse 5, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And you see, this is the explanation for everything that they do not expect on this Easter Sunday. Jesus Christ, who had died, is no longer dead, but really, literally, physically, and bodily risen from the grave. Why are you looking for Jesus among the tombs? Dead people don't hang out in tombs. He's risen, he's alive. Well, they rush to the other disciples in verse nine. They find the 11 closest of Jesus' followers and they tell them everything that's happened and the reaction they get, well, it's precisely what you'd expect, isn't it? Verse 11, the, the, the disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And again, it's a strong word. It's a word for delirious babbling. They thought that what the women were saying was rubbish. Okay. I think sometimes we can have a sort of mental image of people in the ancient world that they were a bit sort of credulous or foolish. You know, as if these disciples were all hanging around outside the tomb, having a vigil, just, just waiting for something to happen. Or, or the minute someone came and told them, oh, he's risen, they were immediately, oh, yes, of course, but no. Look, they knew what we all know. Dead people don't come back. They knew that better than we do. Far higher mortality rates in the first century than now. They were well acquainted with death. And they don't believe these women. But then there's Peter in verse 12 who slips out and runs to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. And now this is an interesting little detail, isn't it? You know, in 1922, the tomb of Tutankhamun was excavated for the first time by archaeologists. And when they, um, when they excavated that tomb, they discovered that it had been robbed on at least two occasions before they got there. Many of the treasures in the tomb had been taken. Uh, of course, the body was still there. Because if you... Um, uh, you can go to the British Museum and see it, actually. Um, if you rob a tomb, it's not the body you're interested in. It's all the valuables that it's buried with. In the first century, cloth was a very expensive commodity. And here we see that the tomb wasn't robbed because the precious linen, the valuable thing, the thing you'd steal is lying there on the side. It's Jesus who's missing. Now, this week, our, our vicar, Paul Williams, um, just, just gently told me off on Wednesday um, for talking about the empty tomb it's a bit of a cliche in the Christian world, isn't it? The empty tomb. Because, of course, he said, look, the tomb, the tomb wasn't empty. Actually, the grave clothes were lying there, and that's quite an important detail. See, what the eyewitnesses saw wasn't an empty tomb. It was a missing Jesus. Where's the body? And the angels say, he has 
risen. And do you see what Luke is doing here in this account? He says, you can be certain that Jesus rose again in history, that in a pl- at a place in a time 2,000 years ago outside Jerusalem, Jesus defeated death and was really physically resurrected. It wasn't a mistake. The resurrection isn't a later invention, a myth or a legend. It wasn't the product of wishful thinking or credulous, foolish, ancient people. Look, this is what the witnesses saw, says Luke. Jesus was missing, and if you read on in Luke 24, witness after witness after witness saw Jesus, spoke to him, uh, touched him, ate meals with him. Can you imagine asking one of those early disciples, do you believe in life after death? Of course I believe in life after death. I've seen life after death. I've touched it. I've eaten breakfast with life after death. Of course I believe in it. Luke says it's good, it's so good because it's true. And listen, two, two little details just to notice. Couldn't let these pass before, before we move on. Two little details about the, um, the eyewitnesses that Luke mentions. Uh, do you notice that Luke names names? Verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the others who told this to the apostles. Luke names names. Why does he do that? Well, listen, he's writing about 45 years after these events occurred. Presumably, the people he names are still alive. This is an open invitation to his first readers to say, go and check it out. Ask the witnesses. Look, here are their names. You know their address. They're from Galilee. It's not a big town. Go there. Okay? We know from Luke 8 that Joanna was the wife of Herod's administrator. She's a prominent figure. He's mentioned Joseph of Arimathea, um, was um, the man whose tomb was used to bury Jesus. Again, he was like an MP in Jerusalem, a public figure. It's an open invitation to go and find out for yourself. I mean, just, just think of a modern-day parallel for a moment. Uh, Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, died just around the same sort of time period ago, about 45 years ago in Memphis, Tennessee in the USA. And there are, well, there are a handful of people, aren't there, who believe that the king is not dead, he's alive and well, and living on the moon or or whatever it is, okay? But there's a reason that that story has not taken hold of millions of people around the world, because, well, the witnesses of what happened are still alive, You know, go and take a flight to Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, I'm sure you have a lovely time. It's Memphis, Tennessee. And talk to the witnesses. Ask his friends and family and the people who were there. Go to the grave. And Luke says, look, here are the names. Here's where they live. Factual evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Real eyewitnesses and an invitation to his first readers. But notice too, that the first witnesses on the scene are women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. And look, this might not shock or surprise us, but in the first century world, women had such a low social status that that their testimony wasn't valid in court. Uh, Josephus, the first century writer, you'll like this, he writes, you can't trust women to testify because the levity and boldness of their sex means that they're not likely to tell the truth. So I don't know how the women are feeling in here this evening. You're feeling much levity, much boldness, okay? 
if Luke had invented this story, there is no way that three women would have been the first witnesses on the scene. In fact, he would have been under significant pressure to remove the women from the story entirely. But Luke says, look, this is what happened. This is what they saw. This is what they heard. Jesus was missing. The angels, we saw the risen Lord. Eyewitness evidence. And Luke says, you can be certain that it is good because it's true on the basis of what they saw and heard. But very briefly, and secondly, there's a second line of evidence in these verses that were read for us. Uh, We've seen the evidence of the eyewitnesses. Um, Luke also draws our attention to the words of Jesus as a reason you can be certain here. Um, Just look at what the angels say in verse 5 again. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Now, do you see what these messengers from God are here to remind the women of. For three years while you were with Jesus, he had one sermon to preach, and it was this. I didn't come to be just a good teacher. I didn't come to be just a good example. I came to die and to rise again. You can read any of the four Gospels and see how Jesus preached that message again and again and again. And of course, the disciples were so fixed in their belief that dead people don't come back that they just didn't understand what he was talking about. They thought it was foolishness until the angels remind them of what he said. And just notice one little word in verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered and crucified, and on the third day raised again, must, not might, not even will, but he must be delivered over, and crucified, and raised again. Jesus' message was that this had to happen. His whole purpose was his death and resurrection. Uh, You know, Jesus told the story of a rich young man, and um, he sits down one day with his father, and um, I don't know what it was like in the first century, but I sort of imagine, you know, an, an oak-panelled study. You know, they're a wealthy family, and he comes into his father and he says, Dad, um, I stand to inherit a lot from you. You're a wealthy man. I've got a big inheritance coming to me. But the thing is, I don't really want to wait till you've died. I kind of want the inheritance now. Can you give it to me? And it's a shocking story because the young man takes the inheritance and he leaves and he spends it on whatever he wants. Effectively, he sits down with his father and says, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Dad, I I wish you were dead. And it's a shocking story when Jesus tells it because Jesus says that is how we have treated God. 
Think of all the good things that God gives us every day. Life and love and laughter, family, friends and fun, the beauty of a sunny day in the peaks, the joy of looking at a newborn child in the face, the companionship of a friend who's with you through thick and thin and all the ups and downs of life, all these good things that our creator God gives us, and yet so often we're happy to live life without reference to him. Barely even think of him at all. Maybe if there's something really stressful coming up, we, um, we wing up a quick prayer or something like that. But otherwise, we're happy to live life without reference to him so much of the time. It's as if we say to God, God, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. God, I wish you were dead. And Jesus said that because we reject the God of life, we cut ourselves off from life. We deserve to die. But Jesus said he came to rescue us. He came to die our death, to bear the punishment we deserve for the way we've treated God in our place and to rise again, to punch through death, to prove that death is defeated for every one of us. A few years ago, my parents went skydiving. And let me tell you, if you've not reached that point, it's, um, it's an embarrassing thing to discover that your parents are actually living a more exciting and adventurous life <laughs> than you are. I don't know if... Uh, maybe, maybe you're living a more exciting and adventurous life than I am, and, uh, and you've been skydiving. But, um, but, but I was less impressed when I discovered that when you go skydiving for the first time, you're basically strapped on to someone else. You know this? You've seen this? Someone else has to actually jump out of the plane. You really have nothing to do with it. You're just strapped on. They jump out, and someone else pulls the parachute and saves your life. And, and you see, spiritually... In, in the way that matters most in the universe, what Jesus did for us is just, just a little like that. You see, he died the death that we deserve. He jumped out of the plane for us. He faced the right condemnation of God for us. And he punched through death to eternal life for us too. He rescued us for anyone who trusts in him and so you see, the disciples, after they had seen the, the, um, the body of Jesus missing, I nearly said the empty tomb then, after they'd seen the body of Jesus missing from the tomb, after they'd seen the risen Lord Jesus, they didn't have to have a, a crisis meeting and figure it all out. How do we understand this all? The church didn't have to cook up a gospel or invent Christianity because Jesus had spent three years telling them that he had come to bear their curse and defeat death for them in the resurrection. And in just a few days, they're transformed into bold witnesses, declaring that truth as widely as they can. And how kind of God to send those angels and point them back to the words of Jesus and remind them. See, Luke wants us to see that we can be certain that Jesus rose from the dead and certain that he has defeated death for us. Is it too good to be true? 
Well, it certainly is very good, isn't it? I hope that this Easter, the message of life after this life, eternal life that goes through death, gives you comfort and joy. But Luke wants you to be completely convinced this evening that it's so good because it's true and you can believe it for yourself. And listen, if you're a Christian here this evening and actually that's something that um, you've been feeling doubts about, and I want to encourage you that the evidence is there. Go back, read Luke's gospel, be convinced again. And I want to say, whoever you are, that if you have questions about the evidence that you feel like still haven't been answered, or really any questions about Jesus at all that you've never found a satisfactory answer to, or frankly, if you'd just like a bit of a refresher on some of this stuff, here are two steps that you could take. Um, uh, The really low-tariff one is that we've got some of these booklets, The Real Easter, and they're just on the doors on the way out. They're free. Grab one of those and take it away and read it. That would be be the 10-minute next step you could take. But why not invest more than that? in the most important events that ever happened. That course Chris mentioned, Christianity Explored. Grab a flyer for that. Come along for the first week. Try it out and dig into the evidence for yourself. Luke says it's good because it's true. Amen.